This episode has been a difficult one. Yeah. I had a lot of expectations and hopes and dreams that I bought into that needed to be let go of to let myself explore uh, this one logically outside of the collective reasoning that I bought into. A lot of it had to do with um, my genetic fallacies that I had to let go of, um, my social conditionings based on class and geography in the world and um, the things that were available to me, the history of my geography, certain things like that. Um, I want to start this one out with a quick story. Um, I grew up in a capitalist nation uh, that practices consumerism um, and uh, pretty much spearheaded the consumerist democratic society um, that uh, industrialism took full swing with the help of Bernaysian marketing, uh, PR, advertising, and propaganda. Uh, Edward Bernays, the father of PR and propaganda, literally wrote the books on both. Um, if, if I had gone the same route as everyone around me, uh, I could have been pretty much upper level successful in all of these areas, maybe even at the top of an industry. I think that was what was frustrating for the people around me is um, I knew enough to crush a sector of the world, um, but I didn't really want to choose one. And this this led to some interesting conversations because I number one I I went from every end of the political spectrum, realizing that all of them required a certain amount of belief to get them right. Even though most people disagreed with this, I realized that you know either a they were unaware of the beliefs they were practicing, and I said this differently back when I was way more egocentric and narcissistic, uh, way more judgmental in my analysis of their beliefs. Um, or I didn't process or have beliefs the same way as other people. Um, now I realize both of these to be true. I've, I've always focused more on choices. Um, choices are way more important than what we believe. But choices aren't as easy to communicate as belief because People are ready and willing to believe that other people believe what they say they believe. And then they get butt hurt when they realize that their choices don't line up with what they say they believe, which is ironic because me focusing on choices, using time to understand people's context and not, you know, trusting people based on their beliefs, but having everyone earn trust in a way that other people say is a broken way to trust people, but I find is literally what they have to resort to when they're fra fragile construct of trusting people based on, you know, the beliefs that they're aware of that doesn't necessarily mean that 
is where they are. It it goes into, you know, just this whole idea that, um, you know, the world believes they know how to trust, but they have trust issues that they aren't aware of until they get to situations in life where they don't want to be aware of these things anymore. So they make themselves forget these things or not remember them or try again. It's like they found something that doesn't work and now they're literally trying to ignore it, hoping that it magically gets better by ignoring it rather than addressing the illogical dilemma that has become collective reasoning in that way. And this has all led me to have really, really deep conversations with people that you know, you know, I have gone against what I chose to believe because I was looking for what was right in the world. Um, and I really listened in ways that I realize now a lot of people don't choose to do because it's really uncomfortable. It's realizing if I had no obligation to uh, share what I was practicing when I believed certain things, um, I did a much better job uh, listening to other people well enough to even, you know, sell them on what was, what I was believing, which, you know, wasn't just traditional beliefs like religion or economic systems or governmental systems. Like, this was even, like, had to do with when I was a foodie, like, I could... I could listen to people enough to when they say they didn't like sushi, I could listen to them enough to actually get them to go out and get sushi, listen to them enough to understand what they may or may not like. And then at the end of the day, they ended up realizing they did like sushi because it's way more than just this vague idea of raw fish to them. It's like (laughs) the things that can happen from listening are – Number one, we get really upset, defensive, or even offended, you know, extreme cognitive dissonance or some degree of cognitive dissonance where all we can think of is how we're more right and how we need to explain how we're more right. And if we can let go of that impulse, eventually we will listen long enough because really what happens is when we know what we need to say, We stop listening, and if they're still talking, there's a chance that exactly what you need to know to realize that your explanation is going to hurt the situation, and even if you hear that, you're not going to listen to it because you're like, I already thought of a good explanation, and that breaks my explanation, so I kind of need to ignore it and hope they ignore it. And this is how we get into explanatory (laughs) debates where... The two people debating are not listening to each other. Or one of the sides is listening to the other side, but the other side doesn't believe that they're being listened to because listening, being, feeling listened to is based on validation. Being listened to is based on our ability to listen and change or pivot in the moment and even accept that we were wrong in a way that could be so fundamental that it could be life-altering. There are at least half a dozen beliefs that I had to let go of 
that were spreading me thin when most people have about three major beliefs in culturism that they adopt internally. You know, most people, it's, you know, either religion, economics, and nationalism. Uh, other people, it's science uh, and uh, spiritualism and uh, governance and uh, some sort of anti-nationalism, which all of these things are, you know, they're culture mindsets. It's a hive mind and nobody knows who the queen is. They all think they're the queen, when in reality they can all be easily manipulated with Bernaysian marketing and PR and propaganda tactics has gone through many names over the past century. Um, started out as propaganda, then turned into PR, then turned into PR and advertising, then turned into marketing. Um, and, you know, there is a an ethical art alternative now, that, but I won't go into growth hacking that much. Um, but this is this has all led me, like I keep saying, to really, really interesting conversations. I had a conversation with a socialist uh, a couple of years ago. We became real good friends. He's about 10 years younger than me. And I realized that, you know, if I was his age in this point in time in history, I probably would have found and learned and been appealed to the same things as he did. But the abundance of information on socialism that has become overwhelming to most people now when it comes to socialism and, you know, communism, it's, it's realizing, you know, the majority of that information wasn't available to me because the heart and soul of that information was the rest of the information now is actually propagandic industrial bull crap and that's something that we we talked for a year and this this might be upsetting for some people to hear this and that's the point it's realizing there are inconvenient truths that make both parties wrong and i'm not saying that i'm right because i believed it was bullshit because i was a capitalist we came to the end of these discussions that took course over a year dozens and dozens of discussions sometimes took weeks between you know continuing the discussion because we had to emotionally and spiritually recover as friends to continue this talk and at the end of it all i realized from my side on capitalism i've been everything from you know uh liberal to you know republican to uh, libertarian to constitutionalist to uh, anarcho-capitalist to anarchist to anarcho-humanist and now I just I just am what I am but uh, this time I was somewhere between constitutionalist and anarcho-capitalist and as you can imagine these debates between me and one of my best friends who is a socialist communist I realized that both of us were pretty duped for the majority and the things that we were both afraid of and fighting against we had learned a completely different terminology to describe these fears we were both afraid of tyranny and we were both led to believe that our way to avoid tyranny um, was absolutely correct and in the end 
I realized that to him what democratic socialism or democratic communism was was a way to avoid uh, the pitfalls of a tyrannical governmental leader. And what I had been conditioned to believe is that, you know, a free market with a government in the middle um, will, if if the government is small enough, it will, you know, prevent the industrialist titan tyranny of congor- corporate conglomerates. But in reality, I realized that the way I saw this centralized socialist movement as, you know, yeah, it could work in the now, but like eventually, given enough time, it will break down. And I realized that they were just saying the same thing to me that, yeah, like small government can work in the now, but eventually corporations will you know, get to the point where time, they it's on their side and they will enslave us all again. It's like realizing that I'm like, like, I realize that there is no good way to understand the difference between what you believe and what somebody else believes when they are polar opposite without listening through the discomfort, the disgust, what you believe to be arrogance. Realize that they believe all these things about you from the other side. And they can equally justify it in ways that may even sound more intelligent than you, which can be beyond frustrating because love and, you know, kindness and honesty and trust those are paradoxes that lie on the what the extreme left side but they exist in the left side not just the extreme left side but the left side where the right side is reasoning and duality right and wrong these sort of things and the thing is is that's not completely you know discountable either it's realizing the extremes on both sides are what get us to not actually communicate and listen when we don't take an extreme position and realize we are conditioned to take an extreme position without even knowing it. This is how Bernaysian marketing, PR, and advertising and propaganda works. Like, you don't know what you don't know. Like, that was their goal for since before any of the generations that are alive today. They started back during like World War One. Like, this is this is history that is so hidden but is so available but like so ignored that it's a cult by being ignored not by it's being kept secret it's like it doesn't have to be kept secret because nobody's interested in learning it because Bernaysian marketing is so beautiful and they tell you what to what is good and what is bad but they show you what to ignore. They want you to know about what is good or bad, but none of that is the knowledge that you truly seek. None of that is the missing piece, whether or not you're on the ANCAP side or whether or not you're on the ANCOM side. That's the thing that blew me away, this discovery that listening to what we need, that missing piece that would tell us how to make, how to take action, how to make that choice, where that choice point lies 
is literally behind the people we hate to listen to the most. The people who we feel most impulsed and compulsed in a subconscious way to dismiss them and browbeat them intelligently. Because we've learned two conflicting social reasoning systems. And each half has pretty much half of logic. This is the same between ANCAPs and ANCOMs, you know, libertarians and socialists, you know, the left and the right, men and women. It's like we have two halves of logic. This is why men and women can't see the difference between masculine and feminine. And even in this debate of the spectrum of genders, they we all seem to be missing this binary revolution of paradox where like a binary star system it's like if gender is a spectrum and male and female are sex and they're absolute and they may have variations like anomalous variations you have a binary uh, secular rotating paradox called masculine and feminine that can exist in both male and female sexes exist in variations of all the genders and realize that gender is a lot like point of view on the world and thank goodness you know we don't have to pick our political party and absolutely stick with that. Imagine if that was on your ID and they could say, no, you can't change your political party. You've already chosen it. How confusing would it be if you could change your political party? It's like we we see the world in such extreme duality that when we look at the duality of male and female sexes in a spectrum like gender, we real we think that it has to be either or when even understanding a binary you know cycle system like masculine and feminine is what we need to understand these binary rotating systems that blur the lines between duality and paradox that blur the lines between reason and logic that help us understand our environment is always changing these are the things that I had to address, not just on, you know, gender and sex and masculine and feminine, but when it came down to something I held really dear, which was economic systems as a capitalist. And I realized that capitalism doesn't need an economic system to exist. Economic systems exist to enforce or protect a certain, you know, way of capitalist commerce. But what's really interesting is, you know, natural capitalism doesn't need economics. Economics are how intelligent people want to create a perfect bubble system of, you know, like a an economy under a dome is kind of how it works. It's they're very fragile systems. Economists don't want to admit this, but this is why they're so important is because any system they are an expert in, they are an expert in, as we know experts. When, you know, when it comes down to it, natural capitalism doesn't need experts. Economics needs experts. It's it's an expert trap. 
And this is something I never wanted to accept as a capitalist. But now I understand, like, I'm a natural capitalist. That means I see the value in, you know, socialism essentially in a startup and then it shifts to once it's self-sustainable it's now capitalistic and if it gets too capitalistic to where the point it adopts industrialism that's when it turns into something that is just as bad or wrong and tyrannical as socialism that turns into a tyrannical hierarchy of absolute control i'm like it's just different ways to get to the same results that we all don't want or different ways to get to the same results that we all want, but we have been trained to ignore them through Bernaysian marketing, PR, and propaganda techniques. It's realizing we are trained to be taught what is right. We are trained to be taught what is wrong, and we are trained to ignore anything else. And these ignore labels have different terminology, you know, wrong, bad, sinful, evil, you know, criminal, uh, illegal, even, even when they're not. Like, there are so many things that are considered criminal when they're only illegal. And there are so many things that are illegal that are more like a fee. And it's, there's so many things that are illegal that are not wrong. They're like, it's realizing that this is, you can know this to be true because as long as legal systems have existed, we have had things that are, le- that are legal that are wrong. Like law does not define morality. It is the role of morality to keep redefining laws. And when laws become the common definition of morality, it will seem like living a moral lifestyle is lawlessness because we live in a delusion where we need more laws. We are addicted to rules and, you know, correcting imperfections. When in reality, this keeps people from learning. And if people can't learn from their mistakes, they will just get angry and lash out. And this is true on both sides of every single sides there are to have both sides of. Like, that's the craziness here. And the opposite of crazy is still crazy. And eventually I came to realize that, you know, as a capitalist, I was duped and pretty much brainwashed into believing in economics. This is why it is so complicated to understand economics and even people who are graduated in economics they realize they're an expert but they don't understand economics the way they feel they should like this is really disconcerting for people who graduate in economics and realize that they don't feel like they know what they need to know to actually do anything and that's That should be concerning for anyone that trusts in economics or economic systems. What if economics is the religion that has been placed upon capitalists to keep us from listening to morality and to have a learned morality that might have been right once, but over time we realize, oh, it wasn't absolutely right because either the world changed, we changed, what we wanted changed, what we needed changed, any sort of thing could have changed. And the economists don't want to lose their control and be made absolute, 
absolutely obsolete compared to whoever the new economists are. We need to let go of this economic addiction. Like, I'm still a capitalist. And if I figured out a way to do this, and I'm not really that smart, I get told this all the time. If I can figure this out, other people can too. It just requires listening beyond what you are comfortable listening to. It requires not responding to things you feel you can correct and fix or whatever in other people's beliefs. It means listening past the discomfort, listening past the disgust, listening past the craziness and realizing that the opposite of crazy is still crazy. And you will understand that you are just as crazy to them as they are to you. And if you ever want them to understand what's valuable to you, you have to first do what the hard thing is and listen to what's valuable to them past all of your choices to be uncomfortable or you know, disgusted or confused. All of these things are choices. Like it is your choice to be confused instead of curious. 100% of the time. It's always your choice. Unless you believe that absolutely everything is a belief, there are no choices, there's no such thing as choice, there's no such thing as free will, and everything is a belief, and there are secret people in control, and you have no choices, then you need to explore what power could come from letting yourself Believe in something different like everything is a choice until perhaps you no longer need to believe in that. Until you realize just how much everything is a choice. It's not an absolute thing because belief still exists. But realizing, believing that everything is a belief is contradictory in its hypocrisy to choice. Whereas Knowing everything is a choice is not contradictory unless one chooses to believe that everything is a belief. This is, this is the, uh, the relative morality of absolute beliefs and why they have been trained to call anything outside of their socially conditioned morality as relative morality. It's, Hypocrisy through contradiction by training people not to listen to things that would benefit them most to listen to, not because of their fear of conversion. That's of the false belief. You don't convert to people by listening to them or else, you know, everyone who watched The Matrix would believe that they're in The Matrix or believe that we're in a computer simulation by AI. Like That's, that's not how conversion doesn't work like that. Conversion, absolute conversion is something that is a symptom of believing in absolute beliefs. There's really no such thing as absolute conversion unless you believe there is. That's, that's the thing. It's like if you, if you believe that everything is a choice, eventually you will know that everything is a choice and you will know that you always have a choice to be converted. It doesn't magically happen through feelings or other crap like that. Like feelings don't lead you to the emotions that you seek, like joy and peace. Feelings lead you to, you know, long-term 
occasional happiness buried in more common unhappiness or misery or degrees of this or you know contentment but not really joy um you know just getting by or you know making the best of things we live in an imp- this is what it live eventually leads to and then i started to explore the uncomfortable things and piece together my personal truth which is more moral than anything i tried you know when i was m- measuring myself against absolute beliefs i'm like i'm way more moral than i ever was people feel like i'm judging them constantly because when i talk about this kind of morality they feel judged but their feelings are lying to them and they accuse me of things that i realize are just what they accuse themselves are and they've been trained to believe that no one else is capable of this unless they want them to be capable of this because they worship them to some degree because they think that they're better at them at the beliefs that they practice that are not meant to give them the tools to be good at what they want to be good at a good moral honest trustworthy you know loving kind person they, these are the tools to do the opposite to not be kind but to be nice to not be loving but to be tolerant but to not be you know understanding but to hear people to not be empathetic but to be sympathetic these are the world we live in it's like we have a large portion of the world living through extended adolescence and now they're raising children and feel so lost in how to raise children because they themselves are like the mind of a teenager trying to raise a child looking for the expert to tell them what to do and then they get angry at an expert that's wrong because so many people are in a state of extended adolescence especially the people they look up to or worship the most even if they don't say they worship them they revere them or they respect them it's it's all the same it just feels different and this seems crazy when feelings are you know how people know to do things how can you trust your feelings if you haven't questioned all of them if you haven't gone through the process of hating all of them for betraying you and realizing you were wrong about some of them and you have a renewed relationship with them like this is what everyone has to do like this is how you grieve from realizing that you adopted a broken system taught to you by people who adopted a broken system taught to them by people who adopted a broken system taught to them by people who adopted a broken system that are no longer alive and we have no one left alive to know whether or not anyone knew whether or not this was a broken system when in reality it's more likely that things just changed and people wanted to save face and not admit that they were wrong and things got more and more out of control the more people wanted this to be the norm because they didn't want to change they were afraid of looking like they were wrong and losing authority and control it's just a cycle of despair where it's not masterminded it's really just from no harmony between mental intelligence and emotional intelligence and trying to supplement emotional intelligence with spiritual knowledge but realizing that if there's spiritual knowledge, there's also mental knowledge and there's also emotional knowledge. 
but intelligence is what you need to be wise in any one of these three categories and finding harmony um, even if you have one area where you're intelligent in and another where you have a lot of knowledge but not wisdom and another area where you're so wholly unaware of it you you don't even know what the knowledge is and you're afraid of the wisdom because everyone's afraid of the wisdom because if they don't know what the knowledge is they don't know how to see the wisdom and when they ask other people they tell them to be afraid of it and that's even when the experts in in, uh, like mental intelligence wisdom tell everyone to be afraid of emotionally intelligent wisdom same way they tell people to be afraid of spiritually intelligent wisdom this is the intelligent god society we live in of politics religion and otherwise and science it's this is it's part part of culturism plain and simple and you know if you've made it this far like you've and you know you're not angry at me for being the messenger of these things that I've discovered and learned with other people. It's I'm not the discoverer in a way where I own it. <laughs> like that's the crazy thing. That's that's why this episode is about private versus personal. It's like this is my you know personal property, but it's not my private property. Like this idea is not my private property. Like we have such a poor understanding of the difference between personal property and private property that, uh, you know, the capitalists seem to blame the socialists for not understanding property rights. When the fact is, is the capitalists also don't understand the difference between private property and personal property. It's like your dog is your personal property because they choose to be loyal to you. They choose to love you. Even if it doesn't serve them, they choose it. Like That's why they're your personal property. Private property is what leads to people wanting to do dog fights. And the only people who justify dog fights are the people who don't look at dogs as personal property, where it's a mutual choice based on two different beings with different levels of intelligence, two different levels of awareness, which is up for debate on who is more aware of what. And dog owners can understand this as much as cat owners. Like it's pets are personal property. Things get really, really disgusting when they're considered to be private property. And it's realizing that, you know, somebody who believes that their dog is private property, even if they're not doing dog fights, if, you know, if their dog wanted to go with someone else instead, like they might say, no, this is my private property. You can't just take my dog with you just because it wants to go with you. It's like realizing that there are different scenarios where that could be beneficial. If they die, you know, if they can't afford to take care of it anymore, that's really beneficial. But otherwise, it's like they're treating their animal like a slave because they will see it as private property. It's just all degrees 
of wrongness. There's no absolute wrong, and since your wrong isn't as bad as somebody else's wrong, your wrong is justified. No, justification is just like masturbation. You're only screwing yourself. Like, let it go. Let go of the justifications and the explanations that are used to justify the justifications that nobody talks about directly. Nobody admits the justifications or even that they're justifying you can see the justifications by the explanations that defy some sort of common sense logic most people don't aren't even aware of logic if you want to you know understand advanced logic beyond what everyone is taught partially check out you know on youtube uh uh an illustrated video book of uh, bad arguments. An illustrated video book of bad arguments. Check that out. Like this, this is the advanced stuff that like we're only taught a piece of the puzzle or several pieces of the puzzle based on your perspective. Um, and these are the missing pieces that could really help you practice these. Like brainwash yourself with that instead. It's like. It's the tools to free yourself from feeling misunderstood or feeling like you're explaining to idiots all the time. It's like you will learn how to listen without needing to explain and then get people to understand without needing to explain. Like that's the part that's most mind boggling. And this is how like I could see things that people may consider crazy like the difference between personal and private property. I used to believe the differences I'm about to talk to are super crazy, but actually they reside more in logic than in collective reasoning that keeps me from being as powerful as the industrialist that I hated as an ethical capitalist really want me to believe is all that is possible. So if you're interested in learning, you know, the hidden truths of you know, the truth that I thought I knew absolutely as a trained expert in economic practical practice theories in the world today, popular economic theories, and historical economic theories. Like, there are so many versions of economics that, like, it would blow most people's minds who think that they know economics. It's like most people don't know you know the difference between Adam Smith and John Nash they they don't know the difference between economic theories and anti-economic theories of governance it's they don't understand the difference between commerce and economics they don't understand the difference between trade and economics they don't understand that currency is an economic tool it's a middleman tool. It's like you can have free trade without currency, and it doesn't have to look like trade and barter as you know it. Trade and barter exists all the time. We just don't understand how it looks in a digital age. It's realizing that things like eBay and things like Craigslist and other things, they could still work if money wasn't the middleman. It's a favor economy works way better than trade and barter a hundred years ago in the digital age. People 
it's it's not that they can't see this. It's that just like me, I refused to see this because I wouldn't let go of the idea that trade and barter has to look like it did 150 years ago. And it's just, it, it doesn't look like that because we're not giving it the attention that it deserves to create a more ethical free market. It's realizing that Adam Smith was mostly wrong. And this is evident even in the fact that most people believe in the invisible hand of the marketplace. This was an incomplete idea that Adam Smith, you know, probably wasn't even aware was incomplete. He borrowed this from Isaac Newton, which uh, one of his laws of physics, it's, it, it ended up being broken. The law of physics that has been since improved on is what Adam Smith based the invisible hand of the market of supply and demand on that John Nash helped solve that problem. That most people aren't aware that John Nash solved that problem, even if they've seen A Beautiful Mind. They didn't understand economics to understand why he said Adam Smith was wrong and why that's profound and what was actually wrong. And they still go on believing that the invisible hand of supply and demand is right because they don't know how to know what they don't know even when it's given to them. This is the craziness that is literally rooted from Bernaysian marketing, PR, and propaganda tactics that have evolved so much that, you know, we are wholly unaware of them going on. And while we mock and ignore Sigmund Freud, his psychology of control is literally being used first in propaganda, and then in PR, after propaganda got a bad name because the Nazi propagandic minister loved Edward Bernays and his, you know, his tools he created. And Edward Bernays realized, ah, oh, dang it, the Nazis messed up things for me. Got to change propaganda to PR. Got to give it a rebranding campaign. And then eventually, you know, he teamed up with Anna Freud and they, they, uh, they invented ads and ad men in the advertising market. And then, you know, it's everything that most people know as marketing is if it, if it utilizes PR and ads, it's literally propaganda. Like that's something that was really hard for me to come to terms with as, you know, a practicing marketer that kind of woke up to a hypocrisy that was, so contradictive to the principles I thought I held that I had to make a drastic life-altering choice until I discovered, you know, growth hacking. I came up with my own idea that I called advanced marketing tactics. And then I realized, okay, this is what Jack Reese and, you know, was talking about and 22 immutable laws of marketing eventually turned into growth hacking that, you know, Seth Godin talks about and, you know, Ryan Holiday talks about and uh, just Sean and all of these people, the growth hacking experts, this is ethical marketing. Like the alternative is there, 
But even most marketers don't know how to do more than mock and ridicule this. This is why we, you know, capitalists are afraid to look at the difference between personal and private property because we're shooting the messenger. So hopefully you can listen to a messenger that isn't a socialist. Is I see the value of socialism in things like startups, and I love that they're able to pivot and change to turn it into capitalism. And I absolutely do hold it against them when startups that turn into you know ethical capitalism turn into corrupt industrialism, like you know some big names in tech. Like the war going on right now between Google and Facebook and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. It's like this is an ethical war that for years to me looked like they were all industrialists. But now that I have the tools to know the difference, I'm amazed at what I'm able to know when I once didn't know what I didn't know that I didn't know. And it's just... It's layering on layers of truth that fill in those degrees that, you know, other people were saying that I was unaware of, but I didn't know a better way. So I didn't want to admit that there was a degree of wrongness to something that I was trained to believe was absolute. It's uh, the difference between private property and public property has a massive impact for the future of free market, natural capitalism that is beyond Adam Smith, that is beyond John Nash, that is beyond Satoshi Nakamoto. These are the things being worked on right now with you know, new systems of impact on commerce and marketplaces, positive impact that help creatives in every single sector realize that, you know, you don't have to be, you know, some degree of a middleman to be a creative and actually make money in this world. It's, this is, this is the world we live in, a world of hope, a world of balance, a world of harmony between social impact and positive commerce. And it's, it's beautiful in the way that it says that everything is mostly wrong, but also shows us how we can all be right because the ideas that these were all based on can be redefined in this digital, you know, revolution that's been going on for 40 years. And we've gone through a third industrial revolution. We're heading into a fourth industrial revolution. And we have a choice point. We either choose to go down the scary route of the fourth industrial revolution of AI, centralized AI, or we choose to go down the alternate path that is we're trained to be afraid of, of decentralization, and figure out that we can have the benefits of AI the same way that, you know, the people who were human computers, human calculators that were dissenting against the invention of calculators. Eventually, computers would take over the world if we let calculators become commonplace. And it's realizing calculators haven't taken over the world. If we treat AI the same way, it will be a tool the same way calculators are. And, you know, we won't end up with a centralized AI fourth industrial revolution. We could have a decentralized revolution 
tool-based AI, not super intelligent, knows everything, does everything, central AI system that we all tap into. No, we can all have our own little piece of AI that is no closer to being self-aware than a computer is to us because it knows more than us. Like intelligence isn't the path to self-awareness. Self-awareness is the path of combining mental intelligence, emotional intelligence, and spiritual intelligence. That's where self-awareness comes from. And anything less than that is partial awareness at best. We're either aware of the world or we're aware of, you know, the unknown or we're aware of, you know, our emotions, but we don't know how to communicate these things with other people that we aren't aware of where they are within the three. It's time to bring harmony between these so that we can understand the difference between personal and private property. Realize that if you're listening to this and you feel like I've underexplained the difference between personal and pro- private property, you're addicted to intelligent explanation. I'm not looking to brainwash you. I'm looking for you to brainwash yourself with something that you can believe because you're not going to convert to me unless you're exactly like me. Like these aren't my beliefs. I'm not telling you to convert to what I'm communicating is my personal truth. And it's going to sound like a belief if you're not already practicing this. So I'm not asking you to convert to this. I'm asking you to let go of your fear of conversion and just learn about something scary and different and let go of bigotry of different. Like just because something seems unintelligible does not mean it's unintelligent. We are the only ones that limit ourselves by not knowing how to listen to what we believe is unintelligent and not being able to ask ourselves, maybe this isn't unintelligible. If I can listen long enough and choose to explore it, it's realizing even if you listen to this whole podcast, yes, you cho- chose to listen to this and now you have a choice point to do what you need to do to translate what you learned here, which may not be more than enough to just be a belief. And you need to do the due diligence to educate yourself because unless you give me or someone else the permission to educate you on this stuff, which requires sacrifice, more sacrifice than we want to do if we don't want to believe something. That's that's the contradicting, you know, paradox that, you know, people scream is hypocrisy, but everyone's a hypocrite, remember? So it's it's only only the hypocrisies that contradict and keep us from making a change, even if it's just to learn more about something that we don't want to believe in, but with an open mind just to know more, not to practice or convert to another absolute belief, but to just become more well-rounded. And the excuses that I always came up with were, I don't have the time, or I don't like to read, or I don't like to watch documentaries, or I don't, you know, I don't, I don't have the capability to do this, or I just can't believe what you believe. These are all piss poor excuses. These were excuses that I used to be lazy. 
really, really lazy and bitch and moan and complain about people not listening to me, not listen, not listening to reason. But you know, it was my choice not to listen to logic, which I didn't realize I didn't have. And one day I just, you know, I did the crazy thing and started exploring what other people choose to believe in. And I realized that, you know, the opposite of crazy is still crazy. And I may not believe that what I believe is crazy, but I have to respect that other people can choose to believe that what I believe is crazy just as much as I chose to believe that what other people believe that defied my reason was, you know, I chose to believe that it was crazy. This is it. It's realizing that it is not my role or anyone's role to educate you on this. We will always scoff at the price required to learn these sort of things. And we can always question something that we don't want to believe in that we learn about if somebody else teaches us. We have to teach ourselves it so that we can not have the bias of a teacher and learn to let go of our own bias when it does not serve a greater vision for a positive future that we want but are trained to expect other people to lead us to. The crazy thing is, is the futures that need to be led to by other people aren't good in the long run or they break in the long run. And even if they're good in the short term, which could be the span of a human life, why would you ever want to build something that could break when your children are using it or your grandchildren? We need to let go of a lot of the ideas we have that have turned into ideals and ideology and realize we have a perfect incubator that has gotten even more perfect because there's no such thing as absolute perfect. This goes into, you know, how imperfections are a belief system. And it's, it's, it's our, it's our choice to mock and ridicule what we believe are imperfections in order to keep ourselves you know, what we don't want to believe is ignorant. And I don't really want to end this on that note. Just know that, you know, when it comes to expertise, the opposite of crazy is crazy. It's realizing that if you're an expert in something and you try to tell people what to do that can fix things or solve things in the long run, they just want a quick fix. They don't want a solution. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to turn the light on their keyboard off all the time because, you know, it's useful to have it on when nighttime comes around. But even if you explain to them that, you know, if you want that benefit at night, it benefits you to get used to turning it off during the daytime. And these are the sort of things that experts can see this, whether it's technologists, which, you know, when they tech 
talk about technologic. It sounds like techno babble. This is what happens with psychologists that when they talk about psychology, it sounds like psycho babble, which is ironic because psycho babble led to the invention of psychological study and the tool of psychology. And it's realizing that technology is much more easily adopted than computers were, even personal computers in the 1970s. And now everyone wants to use technology, but like psychology needs a psychological revolution because this is why people have such a lack of emotional knowledge and are so far from being emotionally intelligent or emotionally aware. Like, tech, like psychologists need to take a page from technologists and learn how to freaking growth hack mental health because the fact is, is mental health is not for the people who have mental illness. Like mental illness they go to psychologists to learn how to navigate their brain and then they can start practicing mental health. The sad, inconvenient truth is the people who don't have a mental illness are using an excuse of not having a mental illness to not practice mental health. This is leading to mental unhealth, which is really just, you know, a lack of practicing mental health and it's mental unhealth has nothing to do with mental illness and it it needs a better brand than mental unhealth so maybe a psychologist can you know reach out to me and my library of consciousness at my.librarioofconsciousness.com and help me understand how to brand this better cuz the mental health industry needs to be redefined I mean, so many of the ethical codes of psychologists don't apply anymore. We've had an ethical revolution, and now what once was ethical is now hurting people. It's realizing we have to take a page from Nellie Bly's, you know, book of life and and realize that, you know, she went into the mental health homes, which were the mental asylums, and drugged their dirty business through the streets. And this is what the people needed for a wake-up call to start treating the mentally ill better and stop filling them with fear and stop treating people that, you know, were actually just visionaries, like human rights visionaries were being put in mental asylums and be, been given drugs to distract the world, from, to believe that they were crazy. Because once given these drugs, it was making them crazy. Because what worked for the mentally ill made the non-mentally ill crazy. This happens so common. And this is an ethical dilemma. That what you were taught to do as a psychologist was taught to you by people who practice Bernaysian Mental health and psychoanalytics. They don't even know that they do this. This is an innovation on Freudian control. This is why there has been an 
underbelly growth of an interest in Jungian psychology, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Traversky, these heuristical psychologies that were beaten into submission and grew over time and with the age of the internet have become more and more commonplace and are being taught as a subsidiary, like an honorable mention in most psychological classrooms because they're not allowed to teach anything else than what is legally accepted as the absolute. And this is being undermined by brave educators in mental health that have to teach one thing but believe they need to teach another thing. And we need to have a complete mental health revolution and realizing it's not overthrowing the system, it's underthrowing the system. We have to build a foundation where the corrupt system of control crumbles under this new foundation that does not tolerate corruption because it's legal or because it's legally right or because it's legally ethical. We need to redefine the ethics of not just the mental health community, but the entire medical community, the way we're treating more and more mental illnesses as worse and worse problems, the point that like even autism, like so many psychologists that are new to the field of study are starting to understand things that even the wise experts are starting to come to terms with and realizing, shit, how do we backpedal without looking like we were wrong all this time because we'll lose the authority necessary to get people to believe us? This is the problem of single-faceted authority where being wrong is wrong. It's realizing that the doctor that helped me out for two decades pivoted and did the ethical thing by letting me do what was right and providing good results beyond the medications we both experimented with for years. I volunteered. I was not forced. And when I found something better, it was encouraged. But this is a systemic problem that young psychologists need desperate help from experts that don't know how to say that they were wrong without losing their authority team up with the young ones the young radicals that are doing you know positive psychology or holistic stuff stuff that you know you can direct from afar but if you get too close you might lose your figure out a way i mean you're a psychologist figure out a way to communicate without communicating it's realizing if we live in a system of manipulation manipulate your language to Break the rules without breaking the rules. Because if the rules are corrupt, they need to be broken. And I'm not saying put everything at risk, but it might require somebody putting everything at risk to make that communication gap more profound. As somebody who's not a psychologist, I would be more than happy to help bridge that gap. I am trying to find other marketers that feel the same way so that we can have an ethical revolution where we separate Bernaysian marketing from psychoanalytics in a way where we integrate moral, ethical boundaries and emotional intelligence with the medical practice. It's realizing that the silos that we've been placed in 
are keeping us from realizing that we need an ethical revolution that is a joint effort between marketers, educators, and the medical industry in order to break up this conglomerate that benefits from siloing of these three things. This is everything the Library of Alexandria project is. There is so much hope. It's just we need we need more help. We need more attention. And it doesn't mean we need money or we need people to commit to it full-time or even part-time. We just need the attention. We need the understanding. We need people to invest even a little bit of time when they can afford it. And hopefully we can encourage people enough to invest more time. And hopefully we can help enough to get people to afford to invest more time. This is the future we're looking to go towards of harmony where we're not competing against each other. Where psychologists don't feel like they're trapped in battling consumerism. And educators don't feel like they're trapped in battling you know, what was to build something better. This is... This is everything that we need to underthrow by building, starting with a firm foundation. As my father every, always said, if you want to build something that lasts, you got to start with a firm foundation. We've woken up to realize that not only is every single silo built on a broken foundation, but it was barely even a foundation to begin with. It's cracking because it was sand. It was just mud and sand. It's cracking because it wasn't a firm foundation. And we can spend the rest of our lives debating whether or not they knew it was mud and sand or whether or not we can, we can just be grateful that we know more and we can start again in a way that only feels like starting over. But we are so much further ahead than what it would really mean to start over. We have so many more tools at our disposal. It's realizing that education, mental health, the medical industry, and marketing were not built upon ethics that existed, ethics and rules and systems that existed Back before the information age, we have to redefine what is right and wrong on a fundamental core level, not to justify things that are, you know, illogical, but to help reason evolve in a world that can be ever more logical. This is what every educator, what every psychologist what every marketer that is trying to be more and more ethical and finding it harder and harder to be, this is what all of us want. But feel like we can't get what we want because it's not just what we want, it's what we need. It's what we crave. We crave an ethical revolution. But that requires a joint effort, not just between marketers and psychologists, but marketers and educators Educators and psychologists, marketers, educators, and psychologists working together and in harmony to underthrow the system. It's realizing that America didn't overthrow England to become America. 
the overthrow effort that they were doing with the war was a distraction. It was a scarecrow tactic to distract from the underthrow that they did with France. That was that was why they succeeded. If it wasn't for that, none of their efforts would have succeeded in time. They hacked time by underthrowing. And this is what we need to learn how to do. It's realizing that we've only been taught that the way to change things is to overthrow them. You got to fix it from within. No, like that literally never works. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. didn't overthrow the system. He underthrew it. That's why Mahatma Gandhi didn't overthrow the system. He underthrew it. It's why Harvey Milk didn't overthrow the system. He underthrew it. It's why... Nellie Bly didn't overthrow the system. She underthrew it. And realizing that she is one of the least remembered human rights activists in American history and asking why leads to a lot of uncomfortable realizations for most of the world. And I realize one of those reasons why is exactly why It hurts me to say that she wasn't qualified to make the change because of some fundamental changes in the world that need the harmony of a more ethical mental health industry, a more ethical marketing industry, a more ethical education industry so that, you know, the reasons that she wasn't taken as seriously as Martin Luther King Jr. or Mahatma Gandhi or Harvey Milk um, aren't fixed but solved by, number one, just not needing human rights evolution revolutions anymore and not having them completely discounted simply for the fact that um, the person who was championing uh, a feminine personality viewpoint of the world, even though they were practicing it in a masculine way, is completely discounted because of their sex in history. It's realizing that the people who will say, well, they aren't completely discounted. It's like if if they weren't, you wouldn't be struggling for what to do next as a psychologist or somebody who works in the mental health industry. It's realizing that the respect you have for them is shared with me, but we both need to realize the inconvenient truth that it's got to be different until different doesn't even have the same impact on our minds as it does now. And it's realizing that I'm hoping that we can hack the results of what happens when somebody with the sex of a man takes one of these feminine mindset revolutions of personality and applies it to a masculine structure. Uh, Because uh, I'm going to be honest, I, I don't really want to do that. I hope we can hack that by doing it together because those people... Most of them were killed that gained real traction. And the ones who made the biggest differences, the biggest advances, 
they were killed. Like, I'm going to be honest. Like, I mean, yeah, I'm ready to die for this. But I don't know about you, but I'd rather find a better way if there is one to be found. And I'm starting to see the benefit in numbers. And I'm like, we live in a day where, day and age where it is much easier to be a quote unquote celebrity or influencer than it was in the days of Martin Luther King Jr. or Jimi Hendrix or Malcolm X. It's realizing we can use these tools of influence in ways that could distribute this message in a way that is, number one, even more powerful, but also more impossible to stop with the bad idea of, oh, if we just kill the person leading this message, it will stop. No, that <laughs> that's the hubris of people in control as they think that the idea is the person. That's why people who want control over themselves or the world, which is a lot less different than they want to believe, they will believe that this is my idea. No, this is this is our idea. This is everyone's idea. This is... We are everyone. We are not anonymous, but we... We can... We can be anonymous, but we also choose not to be and use those two things in harmony to bring a balance. It's realize, realizing, you know, if the people in control can use bots to <laughs> make things seem more impactful than they are, like recently, then the numbers on YouTube supplemented by Google are... We're finding about half of them are fake. It's like if they're allowed to use anonymous bots to their advantage, why can't we? Why can't we use this to make a positive ethical impact? The people who adopt technology first are always the worst of the worst. I mean, criminals adopted the telephone first. They adopted the car first. It's realizing eventually people more than Bonnie and Clyde started using, you know, cars. It's it's realizing we are aware of the tools that are at our disposal and it's up to us to learn how to redefine them for positive impact. And we may not have the capital resources of industrial titans like Google, but what's interestingly what's interesting is the tools do exist. Out of this cryptocurrency movement, we've had a crypto revolution that has created crypto public services that have a lot less to do with currency. And in most cases, the protocols have nothing to do with currency. And these are powerful tools that are undermining infrastructures like YouTube, such as library, that are undermining and underthrowing systems such as centralized internet service providers that rule the world and the internet as we know it, that have turned internet into the internet. They have turned internet into a god by creating the internet. But we have so many internets. I mean, your phone is an internet of apps and each app is an internet that may be connected to the internet, which is just an internet of 
networks connecting to other networks, connecting to other people within networks with it's just internets within internets within internets. We we have so many internets, but we call them different things like websites or organizations or companies or <laughs> or apps. These are all internets and these are the tools that decentralization gives us. It doesn't give us the power to get our own piece of the internet. It gives us the power to create an internet in a way that used to be easier before big industrial titans in the internet. The internet middlemen now stomp out anyone who tries to do what they did to become the middlemen of the internet, the god known as the internet. This is where we live, and it's it's a lot more hopeful to me when I started to, you know, not listen to all the things that were trying to get my attention and pay attention to the things that had no one's attention. And I saw these positive tools such as the library protocol, LBRY library protocol, such as the gun protocol, the axe protocol, which are these decentralized weapons for ethical peace peaceful revolution through underthrow it's offline internet try and wrap your head around that it is possible it's not just something you know you heard talked about in the tv show silicon valley it is literally in existence and the real life jimmy <laughs> the real life michael hendrix <laughs> uh is Mark Nadal and Marty Malmy. It's, they are building an underthrow revolution through offline internet with amazing tools like decentralized car sharing services, decentralized uh, home sharing services, like decentralized identification services, which are super, super powerful when centralized to create titan forces like Uber, Airbnb, even entire governments, internet service providers, the Netflix, like <laughs> identity systems. It's uh, to give us back personal ownership of our names even and that's of our personal identities that's that's huge that's one of the biggest human rights movements <laughs> but it doesn't seem like it because they don't have the marketers they are building the tools that anyone who could be the marketer that Martin Luther King Jr was to the civil rights movement that you know Harvey Milk was for uh the you know, the gay movement back when it was just the gay movement and what Nellie Bly was to the mental health movement and realizing we can do all of these again and it will be much more effective if we are not divided, if we learn how to unite through emotional intelligence. And this is, this is not something, it is everything. And it starts here, and it starts whenever you get there. You're never late. We just 
are constantly looking for you. Please join me in my library of consciousness. I will help you set up your own library of consciousness for this library of consciousness project, which will help us build the content database of positive truth solutions, not just quick fixes that break down over time, but long-term solutions. This is what we need to collectivize our resources for positive impact, not just fixes and quick changes to fix things in the now, but that break down and degrade over time. We need to treat our lives, each other, and ethical evolution like a startup. Realize we need to work together until it takes off on its own merits. We can hack the system, which is really more like counter-hacking the system. Because it's already been hacked, and it was hacked a long time ago with Bernaysian marketing, PR, and propaganda. And we're open-sourcing growth hacking so that you don't have to be a marketer to know how to market your good ideas. You can growth hack your own good ideas, know how to market your brand the same way celebrities who used to go out on their own understood how to market their brand. It's realizing if you have good ideas, you have a brand. If you have good ideas that break down when they're enforced or when you try and convince people or explain it to them, you have good ideas. It's just you might not have the tools to share them in a way that doesn't require even a little bit of force. And we have those tools in growth hacking. And we want to share them with educators, with mental health practitioners, with, you know, marketers that want to be more ethical but don't know how to be when they don't know who to listen to, when they don't know who's right. Guess what? You're right. If you want to be ethical, you just may not have the tools or all the tools you need to know why what you're trying isn't working. We are working with anyone that is willing to invest the time to number one, listen to an hour and a half long podcast about things that are hard to listen to because that's all we require to know that people are qualified to do what it takes to listen to somebody else's why and come through at the end of it and realize they have the why that was the missing piece to making your good ideas gain the traction they deserve without applying force, without enforcing them on their own merits, knowing how to get people to want these more than the things they're trained to want in a consumerist society, Bernaysian consumerist society, Freudian consumerist society, to want things they don't need. And if you are advocating for people to align their wants and their needs to help them in their physical health, their mental health, their educational health, (laughs) their, their capitalist health, then... You, uh, you are exactly what we need. And we welcome you to knowing who we are. And we are open source everything. 
because the world needs it right now. And we will figure out new ways to bring harmony to the counterbalance that is necessary now because we are aware open source everything could be pushed to the extreme. But right now it's what's needed to bring balance. And if we make sure that cooked into the core protocol of how we do things, that when it gets to the point that harmony is met, We can find the balance we need, an ethical balance. But right now, we need to tilt things further than would be comfortable if we were actually in harmony. But since we're not, it's what's necessary. And it is just as uncomfortable because we have an illusion that this is just, you know, a little bit off kilter. But we're not seeing a big enough piece of the puzzle We're not seeing the puzzle as a whole to realize that the piece that we're focusing on, the silo that we're focusing on is missing what's needed. And that's why it feels like you can't find the peace in what you know to fix things because the solution is not just marketers and educators working together or not just marketers and psychologists working together it's not just psychologists and educators working together it's all of them working together in harmony in a way that dualism doesn't like to say is necessary but this is the quantum paradox that will bring an age of quantum psychology that will bring an age of quantum education that will bring an age of quantum marketing where impact comes first. And profit is not the priority in the way that when it is, it sacrifices impact given enough time. We see the evidence for this now. And it's hard to accept. It's realizing it's not just a simple thing that can accept. It's realizing when we first come to realize that it can it can be hard to hear to where we have nothing but cognitive dissonance for it But it eats away at us like, you know, an inception idea and it will grow and just be open to the fact that as you go on through your life, you you will be drawn to this idea as you educate yourself on why this hard to hear idea is making more and more sense. And you're seeing the holes in the reason that are illogical and Come back when you're ready to my library of consciousness or, you know, check out the video, you know, an illustrated video book of bad arguments (laughs) that you can catch on YouTube and pretty soon library or in my library of consciousness under uh, what is logical fallacy. What is a logical fallacy? Something like that. One of those sections. Uh, come to it and you can always find us at, you know, quantumdeepthoughts.com and join the community there. Share this podcast with anyone, with whatever platform they use, by sharing with them podcast.quantumdeepthoughts.com. And it will take them to their preferred platform of choice. That way you don't have to convert them to the platform that you are listening to it on if they don't happen to share that platform. Um, 
this is this is the future that I realized I was terrified when I first saw. And now I have so much hope because I realize I am far from alone. And I have never been really good at communicating. So even as a marketer, I was always finding other people's messages to help them augment with the tools that I was aware of. And I realized it's no different now. I'm just listening to what's being said on a level that requires quantitative analysis, reading between the lines, seeing what's needed, and bridging the gaps between the people who have the messages that just need to unite. And I can help you augment them because like, this isn't my idea. These are your ideas. It's just you may only have you know, one or a couple of pieces to the puzzle. And I'm... I'm really, really excited at how many people have been open to bridging this communication gap to not just tell people how to listen, but to show them how to listen by showing them tools that make it easy to listen by giving them a crutch, but also making them aware that this is just to help you learn to walk. Afterwards, you're going to have to let this crutch go. You're going to have to let this tool go so that you can start to run on your own and then that crutch won't be slowing you down. And in fact, you'll circle around and you'll realize that crutch is exactly what you needed to leap over the high obstacles. But it's a cycle of, you know, grabbing on to something new, getting used to letting go. And then when you get to the somewhere new, you go back and you grab on to what you used to know to help you get to new levels. This is where we are. Everything is secular. Moods are secular. You know, civilization is secular. <laughs> Markets are secular. Trends are secular. Everything's secular. We're in a secular point where things are going to shift the same way they shifted where human psychology got more complex past the 1960s. And it's happening again because we have more of a foundation that didn't exist back then. We went from pretty much having binary personalities to having complex, smarter personalities, layered personalities. And uh, now we are getting to the point where we are having quantum personalities. And this is something that defies what used to be considered science, but is now, you know, in a war with quantum science. So I guess now it, like, it even is science in a sense. It's just the depth of the rabbit hole is layered with layers within the layers. And it's, it's like we've been looking at layers. We, it, when it was binary, it was either a tree or not a tree. And then we cut it up and it's a stack of wood or it's a tree. And now we're realizing that there are layers in each piece of wood. So it's not just layers of pieces of wood. It's layers within the layers. And the more we know, the deeper we go. And we realize that if we want to have all the answers, even in our own silo, we will be kept from seeing so much more truth than we could have ever been aware of if we realize there's no absolute truth other than in the right now and that everything is 
a constant struggle between, you know, figuring out what the new absolute truth is and letting go of the old one and realizing that an absolute truth that spans time and space is a fool's errand. This is, uh, this is essentially probably what's going to sound like mental health marketing and education alchemy to most, but unfortunately what defies reason, but is purely logical. Um, if we use time as our ally, we, we don't need most. We only need a few and the more we have, the faster it grows until we have that exponential curve where it is most. And this is where we are now. We have a small group, and we are making huge strides with the small group. Realize that this started with just one person, and then it went to two, and then it went to five, and now it's much more. And not everyone works full-time or part-time. Most people do what they can when they can. And it's more important the value you bring to the table. And what is really, really enlightening is most people don't know what value they bring to the table unless they can get over that anxiety that they believe they can't bring value to the table and just ask. And we will ask the questions to know what you don't know. We will find the value that you don't believe is there. We just need your attention and your time. That's it. So please join us in my library of consciousness. That's my.libraryofconsciousness.com. Right now, the URL, libraryofconsciousness.com, also points to that. But we will get you your library of consciousness as well if you want it, if that's what you seek, and uh, teach you how to build it in any way that you can afford. Um, and... If you need more than that before you start doing that, we are there for that as well. We're to help you build a foundation. Or if you have a foundation, the good idea that you know needs to get out there, we're able to help you with that too. We work purely on donations and tips. We don't even need them to be sustainable. We just know some people like to give with money and we don't want to say no to that. Because we know that different people say thank you in different ways. We love, you know, receiving thank you in any way, whether it is money or time or favors, whatever it is. Like it's it's up to you. You pay how you can. And if you want if you can only pay it forward, we're more than happy to invest in the future by investing in you now. That is what we're all about. This is why the baby boomers don't get Gen Z. This is why the baby boomers who want this change, even the Gen X that want this change, even the millennials that want this change, have a hard time understanding the Gen Z. Like they they get this in a way that they're not able to explain because they don't know what they know. Because they're too young to understand how to explain what they know in a way that... Any historian would realize they sound just like the wise, silent generation that brought us the golden era of prosperity after the Second Great War that was 
different in the way it lasted than the golden era (laughs) that happened before the Second Great War, which was not sustainable. And we have to come to terms with, yes, we've abused this era of prosperity that they started, but that's not our fault. It's not their fault. It, It doesn't matter whose fault it is. It's really no one's fault as much as it is everyone's partially. So let's just let that go and move forward. Build something new and positive and impactful. Not because it's easy, but because we can. And because we don't have to care if it feels hard. The same way anyone working out to get stronger needs to stop caring about how hard it feels because it will provide great results. This is what we're doing. We are building a foundation, not for the best tomorrow, but for a better tomorrow, and to keep that going indefinitely, if they will keep it. So I don't usually do this, but I have a follow-up to the episode you just listened to. If you are looking for a guide on logic or logical fallacies, one of the most concise and best represented books I've ever uh, had the pleasure of getting to read. Um, It's written for both adults and children alike, so it's really great to share with uh, family and friends of any age um, and any disposition to reading. Uh, And it is an illustrated book of bad habits I highly suggest uh, taking a listen to this. It's a little under an hour long. I have an audio version of it available at the end of this podcast. Um, And it is just amazing. And I highly, highly suggest going to support uh, the author in in this, even just checking out uh, their website, uh, bookofbadhabits.com. Uh, or Google an illustrated book of bad habits, check it out on uh, Amazon, check it out on their website. It's available for free to um, read on the website. You can get this audiobook version on Audible and other places, um, and you can get a Kindle version on Amazon. You can get uh, a printed version from the website or Amazon. Um, they are very, very great in explaining simply in a way that anyone can understand something that, you know, is intelligent as I ever used to believe that I was. This is what I needed to actually not just hear logic and fallacies, but to listen to it and to start implementing it and to integrate it as something that I practice daily and actively work to help other people practice. All right, I love you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And uh, please stay tuned for that right after uh, a quick ad from uh, Anchor. Uh, as you can hear, it is in my voice. And uh, please please support uh, the official release um, at the website mentioned previously. And it will be in the description below. All right, thank you. This is Audible. An Illustrated Book of Bad Arguments by Ali Al-Musawi Read by James Gillis Who is this book for? This book is aimed at newcomers to the field of logical reasoning.
particularly those who, to borrow a phrase from Pascal, are so made that they understand best through visuals. I have selected a small set of common errors in reasoning, and visualized them using memorable illustrations that are supplemented with lots of examples. The hope is that the reader will learn from these pages some of the most common pitfalls and arguments, and be able to identify and avoid them in practice. Preface The literature on logic and logical fallacies is wide and exhaustive. This work's novelty is in its use of illustrations to describe a small set of common errors in reasoning that plague a lot of our present discourse. The illustrations are partly inspired by allegories such as Orwell's Animal Farm, and partly by the humorous nonsense of works such as Lewis Carroll's Stories and Poems. Unlike such works, there isn't a narrative that ties them together. They are discrete scenes connected only through style and theme, which better affords adaptability and reuse. Each fallacy has just one page of exposition, and so the terseness of the prose is intentional. Reading about things that one should not do is actually a useful learning experience. In his book On Writing, Stephen King writes, One learns most clearly what not to do by reading bad prose. He described his experience of reading a particularly terrible novel as the literary equivalent of a smallpox vaccination. The mathematician George Polya is quoted as having said in a lecture on teaching the subject that in addition to understanding it well, one must also know how to misunderstand it. This work primarily talks about things that one should not do in arguments. For many years, I spent part of my time writing software specifications using first-order predicate logic. It was an intriguing way of reasoning about invariance using discrete mathematics rather than the usual notation, English. It brought precision where there was potential ambiguity and rigor where there was some hand-waving. During the same time, I perused a few books on propositional logic, both modern and medieval, one of which was Robert Gula's A Handbook of Logical Fallacies. Gula's book reminded me of a list of heuristics that I had scribbled down in a notebook a decade ago about how to argue. They were the results of several years of arguing with strangers in online forums and had things like, try not to make general claims about things. That's obvious to me now, but to a schoolboy, it was an exciting realization. It quickly became evident that formalizing one's reasoning could lead to useful benefits, such as clarity of thought and expression, objectivity, and greater confidence. The ability to analyze arguments also helped provide a yardstick for knowing when to withdraw from discussions that would most likely be futile. Issues and events that affect our lives and the societies we live in, such as civil liberties and presidential elections, usually cause people to debate policies and beliefs. By observing some of that discourse, one gets the feeling that a noticeable amount of it suffers from the absence of good reasoning. The aim of some of the writing on logic is to help one realize the tools and paradigms that afford good reasoning, and hence lead to more constructive debates. Since persuasion is a function of not only logic but other things as well, it's helpful to be cognizant of those things. Rhetoric likely tops the list and precepts such as the principle of parsimony come to mind, as do concepts such as the burden of proof and where it lies. The interested reader may wish to refer to the wide literature on the topic. In closing, the rules of logic are not laws of the natural world, nor do they constitute all of human reasoning. As Marvin Minsky asserts, 
ordinary common-sense reasoning is difficult to explain in terms of logical principles, as are analogies. Adding, logic no more explains how we think than grammar explains how we speak. Logic doesn't generate new truths, but allows one to verify the consistency and coherence of existing chains of thought. It is precisely for that reason that it provides an effective tool for the analysis and communication of ideas and arguments. San Francisco, July 2013 Logical Fallacies The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. Richard P. Feynman Argument from Consequences Arguing from consequences is speaking for or against the truth of a statement by appealing to the consequences of accepting or rejecting it. Just because a proposition leads to some unfavourable result does not mean that it is false. Similarly, just because a proposition has good consequences does not all of a sudden make it true. As David Hackett Fisher puts it, it does not follow that a quality which attaches to an effect is transferable to the cause. In the case of good consequences, an argument may appeal to an audience's hopes, which at times takes the form of wishful thinking. In the case of bad consequences, such an argument may instead appeal to an audience's fears. For example, take Dostoevsky's line, If God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Discussions of objective morality aside, the appeal to the apparent, grim consequences of a purely materialistic world says nothing about whether or not the antecedent is true. One should keep in mind that such arguments are fallacious only when they deal with propositions with objective truth values, and not when they deal with decisions or policies, such as a politician opposing the raising of taxes for fear that it will adversely impact the lives of constituents, for example. Easy cow. Let me get down and see what this sign here says. Experts agree. Cow emissions are killing our planet. Nonsense. If we get rid of our cows, do you know what would happen? We'd have to walk everywhere. And that would be terrible. Grandma has a bad back as it is. An old Joe could hardly walk ten feet without straining his ankle. Cow emissions are not killing our planet. Straw Man Intentionally caricaturing a person's argument, with the aim of attacking the caricature rather than the actual argument, is what is meant by putting up a straw man. Misrepresenting, misquoting, misconstruing, and oversimplifying are all means by which one commits this fallacy. A straw man argument is usually one that is more absurd than the actual argument, making it an easier target to attack and possibly luring a person towards defending the more ridiculous argument rather than the original one. For example, 
"'My opponent is trying to convince you that we are evolved from monkeys who were swinging from trees. A truly ludicrous claim!' This is clearly a misrepresentation of what evolutionary biology claims, which is the idea that humans and apes shared a common ancestor several million years ago. Misrepresenting the idea is much easier than refuting the evidence for it. Try to stay still, Toucan. I'm almost done. Yes, stay still. This is coming along nicely. The energetic, muscular and colourful Toucan was completely misrepresented by one of the artists. Later on he showed the audience his painting and criticised how dull and lifeless the Toucan had looked. Appeal to Irrelevant Authority An appeal to authority is an appeal to one's sense of modesty, which is to say an appeal to the feeling that others are more knowledgeable. The overwhelming majority of the things that we believe in, such as atoms and the solar system, are on reliable authority, as are all historical statements, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. One may reasonably appeal to pertinent authority, as scientists and academics typically do. An argument becomes fallacious when the appeal is to an authority who is not an expert on the issue at hand. A similar appeal, worth noting, is the appeal to vague authority, where an idea is attributed to a vague collective. For example, professors in Germany showed such and such to be true. A type of appeal to irrelevant authority is the appeal to ancient wisdom, where something is assumed to be true just because it was believed to be true some time ago. For example, astrology was practiced by technologically advanced civilizations, such as the ancient Chinese, therefore it must be true. One might also appeal to ancient wisdom to support things that are idiosyncratic or that may change with time. For example, people used to sleep for nine hours a night many centuries ago. Therefore, we need to sleep for that long these days as well. There are all sorts of reasons that may have caused people to sleep for longer periods of time in the past. The fact that they did provides no evidence for the argument. I can't wait to see you tonight, Gina. The movie starts at nine, so perhaps we can go for a romantic walk along the river before then? One second, sweetheart, I have a call on the other line. Hello? Dr. Chimp speaking. Eau Claire. My dear, I cannot bear the thought of being away from you. What tonight? I'm afraid not, my love. I am... Um, you have a lot of lab work to finish. One second, Claire, I have a call on the other line. Hello, Dr. Chimp speaking. Ah, Maria, my one and only love. How are you doing? That sounds lovely. But too bad. I'll not be able to make it tonight. Peculiarly, Has Professor Chimp, the world's most distinguished living chemist, is often quoted about matters of fidelity. Equivocation 
Equivocation exploits the ambiguity of language by changing the meaning of a word during the course of an argument and using the different meanings to support some conclusion. A word whose meaning is maintained throughout an argument is described as being used univocally. Consider the following argument. How can you be against faith? When we take leaps of faith all the time, with friends and potential spouses and investments. Here the meaning of the word faith has shifted from a spiritual belief in a creator to a risky undertaking. A common invocation of this fallacy happens in discussions of science and religion, where the word why may be used in equivocal ways. In one context, it may be used as a word that seeks cause, which, as it happens, is the main driver of science. And in another, it may be used as a word that seeks purpose and deals with morals and gaps which science may well not have answers to. For example, one may argue, science cannot tell us why things happen. Why do we exist? Why be moral? Thus, we need some other source to tell us why things happen. Hey, you're the queen from Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. So I am. You know, fictional characters can easily show up in the works of other authors, so long as they're in the public domain. That's good to know, Queen. Are you still offering jam every other day? Indeed. If you want to work as my lady's maid, I will offer you tuppence a week and jam every other day. But never today, since today is not any other day. You realise that's a logical fallacy, right? You're a fallacy. Thank you, Queen. That's very witty of you. False Dilemma A false dilemma is an argument that presents a set of two possible categories and assumes that everything in the scope of that which is being discussed must be an element of that set. If one of those categories is rejected, then one has to accept the other. For example, in the war on fanaticism, there are no sidelines. You are either with us or with the fanatics. In reality, there's a third option. One could very well be neutral. And a fourth option. One may be against both. And even a fifth option. One may empathize with elements of both. In The Strangest Man, it is mentioned that physicist Ernest Rutherford once told his colleague Niels Bohr a parable about a man who bought a parrot from a store only to return it because it didn't talk. After several such visits, the store manager eventually says, Oh, that's right, you wanted a parrot that talks. Please forgive me, I gave you the parrot that thinks. Now clearly, Rutherford was using the parable to illustrate the genius of the silent Dirac. Though one can imagine how someone might use such a line of reasoning to suggest that a person is either silent and a thinker, or talkative and an imbecile. Which part of the avocado would you like to try? said the merchant. I want to try the middle bit, said the buyer, which appears to be missing. 
not a cause for a cause. The fallacy assumes a cause for an event where there is no evidence that one exists. Two events may occur one after the other or together because they are correlated by accident or due to some other unknown event. One cannot conclude that they are causally connected without evidence. The recent earthquake was due to people disobeying the king is not a good argument. The fallacy has two specific types. After this, therefore, because of this, and with this, therefore, because of this. With the former, because an event precedes another, it is said to have caused it. With the latter, because an event happens at the same time as another, it is said to have caused it. In various disciplines, this is referred to as confusing correlation with causation. Here's an example paraphrased from comedian Stuart Lee. I can't say that because in 1976 I did a drawing of a robot and then Star Wars came out, and they must have copied the idea from me. Here's another one that I recently saw in an online forum. The attacker took down the railway company's website, and when I checked the schedule of arriving trains, what do you know? They were all delayed! What the poster failed to realise is that those trains rarely arrive on time, and so without any kind of scientific control, the inference is unfounded. Oh, as it turns out, eating chocolate and winning a Nobel Prize have been shown to be highly correlated, perhaps raising the hopes of many a chocolate eater. At the end of every night, and shortly before dawn, the beaver walks all the way to the top of the mountain and asks the sun to come out. The sun always does. Appeal to Fear The fallacy plays on the fears of an audience by imagining a scary future that would be of their making if some proposition were accepted, rather than provide evidence to show that a conclusion follows from a set of premises which may provide a legitimate cause for fear, such arguments rely on rhetoric, threats, or outright lies. For example, I ask all employees to vote for my chosen candidate in the upcoming elections. If the other candidate wins, he will raise taxes, and many of you will lose your jobs. Here's another example, drawn from the novel The Trial. You should give me all your valuables before the police get here. They will end up putting them in the storeroom, and things tend to get lost in the storeroom. Here, although the argument is more likely a threat, albeit a subtle one, an attempt is made at reasoning. Blatant threats, or orders that do not attempt to provide evidence, should not be confused with this fallacy even if they exploit one's sense of fear. An appeal to fear may proceed to describe a set of terrifying events that would occur as a result of accepting a proposition which has no clear causal links, making it reminiscent of a slippery slope. It may also provide one and only one alternative to the proposition being attacked, that of the attacker, in which case it would be reminiscent of a false dilemma. 
Thank you all for casting your votes for the new school dean. I'm pleased to reveal that the votes have been counted, and I shall now be announcing the winner. I bet Mr. Frog wins. No one deserves it more than him. Yes, he's the best. And the nominee with the most votes is... Mr. Hedgehog! Congratulations! Mr. Frog lost the election after Mr. Donkey convinced everyone that if Mr. Frog became the school dean soon enough, the entire university would be run by frogs. Hasty Generalization This fallacy is committed when one generalizes from a sample that is either too small or too special to be representative of a population. For example, Asking ten people on the street what they think of the President's plan to reduce the deficit can in no way be said to represent the sentiment of the entire nation. Although convenient, hasty generalizations can lead to costly and catastrophic results. For instance, it may be argued that the engineering assumptions that led to the explosion of the Ariane 5 during its first launch were the result of a hasty generalization. The set of test cases that were used for the Ariane 4 controller were not broad enough to cover the necessary set of use cases in the Ariane 5's controller. Signing off on such decisions typically comes down to engineers' and managers' ability to argue, hence the relevance of this and similar examples to our discussion of logical fallacies. Here's another example from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, where Alice infers that since she is floating in a body of water, a railway station, and hence help, must be close by. Alice had been to the seaside once in her life, and had come to the general conclusion that wherever you go to on the English coast, you find a number of bathing machines in the sea, some children digging in the sand with wooden spades, then a row of lodging houses, and behind them a railway station. Lewis Carroll Oh, what have we here? A circle-shaped nut. How delightful! You know, ever since I started paying attention to the shapes of nuts earlier today, I have yet to come across one that is not circle-shaped. I think it is therefore fair to say that all food everywhere is definitely circle-shaped. Yes, I have come out and said it. All food everywhere, anywhere, in any universal dimension is absolutely and undeniably circle-shaped. Oh, circle-shaped nut, thy beautiful eyes. Cut! Listen, you little rodent. I've had it with you. Just stick to the script and stop getting carried away. You're doing this for a little educational audiobook, for heaven's sake. We're not reenacting Hamlet. Okay, everyone, let's get it right this time. Take four! Appeal to Ignorance Such an argument assumes a proposition to be true simply because there's no evidence proving that it isn't. Hence, absence of evidence is taken to mean evidence of absence. Here is an example due to Carl Sagan. There is no compelling evidence that UFOs are not visiting the Earth. Therefore, UFOs exist. Similarly, when we didn't know how the pyramids were built, some concluded that unless proven otherwise, they must have therefore been built by a supernatural power. The burden of proof 
always lies with the person making a claim. Moreover, and as several others have put it, one must ask what is more likely and what is less likely based on evidence from past observations. Is it more likely that an object flying through space is a man-made artifact or a natural phenomenon, or is it more likely that it is aliens visiting from another planet? Since we have frequently observed the former, and never the latter, it is therefore more reasonable to conclude that UFOs are unlikely to be aliens visiting from outer space. A specific form of the appeal to ignorance is the argument from personal incredulity, where a person's inability to imagine something leads to a belief that the argument being presented is false. For example, it is impossible to imagine that we actually landed a man on the moon, therefore it never happened. Responses of this sort are sometimes wittily counted with, that's why you're not a physicist. Oh, look, Rabbit, up there. It's a strange beam of light moving through the sky. Whoa! What you think it is? I don't know. It must be aliens visiting us from another planet. No True Scotsman A general claim may sometimes be made about a category of things. When faced with evidence challenging that claim, rather than accepting or rejecting the evidence, such an argument counters the challenge by arbitrarily redefining the criteria for membership into that category. For example, one may posit that programmers are creatures with no social skills. If someone comes along and repudiates that claim by saying, but John's a programmer, and he's not socially awkward at all, it may provoke the response, yes, but John isn't a true programmer. Here it's not clear what the attributes of a programmer are, nor is the category of programmers as clearly defined as the category of, say, people with blue eyes. The ambiguity allows the stubborn mind to redefine things at will. The fallacy was coined by Antony Flew in his book Thinking About Thinking. There he gives the following example. Hamish is reading the newspaper and comes across a story about an Englishman who has committed a heinous crime, to which he reacts by saying, No Scotsman would do such a thing. The next day he comes across a story about a Scotsman who's committed an even worse crime. Instead of amending his claim about Scotsman, he reacts by saying, No true Scotsman would do such a thing. When an attacker maliciously redefines a category, knowing well that by doing so he or she is intentionally misrepresenting it, the attack becomes reminiscent of the straw man fallacy. I can't wait to get in. I feel like tonight is my lucky night. Yes, me too. The line's moving pretty fast. We're almost there. <clears throat> Where do you think you two are going? We're here for the monthly single no more all-inclusive pig party. Only pigs are allowed in. We don't take too kindly to other species here. 
but we are pigs. Look at our IDs. Yeah, you see there, under breed, it says Berkshire. Oh, so you're Berkshire pigs. Well, sorry, only true pigs can come in. Genetic Fallacy An argument's origins, or the origins of the person making it, have no effect whatsoever on the argument's validity. A genetic fallacy is committed when an argument is either devalued or defended solely because of its history. As T. Edward Dammer points out, when one is emotionally attached to an idea's origins, it's not always easy to disregard the former when evaluating the latter. Consider the following argument. Of course he supports the union workers on strike. He's, after all, from the same village. Here, rather than evaluating the argument based on its merits, it's dismissed because the person happens to come from the same village as the protesters. That piece of information is then used to infer that the person's argument is therefore worthless. Here is another example. As men and women living in the 21st century, we cannot continue to hold these Bronze Age beliefs. Why not, one may ask? Are we to dismiss all ideas that originated in the Bronze Age simply because they came about in that time period? Conversely, one may also invoke the genetic fallacy in a positive sense by saying, for example, Jack's views on art cannot be contested. He comes from a long line of eminent artists. Here, the evidence used for the inference is as lacking as in the previous examples. And so, Your Highness, that is why I believe light to be both a wave and a particle. I am impressed. This is very, very interesting. <coughs> With all due respect, Your Highness, how can we entertain the ideas of a dog who developed his ideas while on the street? Guilt by Association Guilt by association is discrediting an argument for proposing an idea that is shared by some socially demonized individual or group. For example, my opponent is calling for a healthcare system that would resemble that of socialist countries. Clearly, that would be unacceptable. Whether or not the proposed healthcare system resembles that of socialist countries has no bearing whatsoever on whether it's good or bad. It's a complete non-sequitur. Another type of argument which has been repeated ad nauseam in some societies is this. We cannot let women drive cars because people in godless countries let their women drive cars. Essentially, what this and previous examples try to argue is that some group of people is absolutely and categorically bad. Hence, sharing even a single attribute with said group would make one a member of it, which would then bestow on one all the evils associated with that group. My opponent believes that we should spend more on education. 
Do you know who else thinks that? The dictator himself. Was it not he who said, A prosperous dictatorship is an educated dictatorship. I rest my case. Affirming the Consequent One of several valid forms of argument is known as modus ponens, the mode of affirming by affirming, and takes the following form. If A, then C, A, hence C. More formally, A implies C, A, therefore C. Here we have three propositions, two premises and a conclusion. A is called the antecedent and C the consequent. For example, if water is boiling at sea level, then its temperature is at least 100 degrees Celsius. This glass of water is boiling at sea level, hence its temperature is at least 100 degrees Celsius. Such an argument is valid in addition to being sound. Affirming the consequent is a formal fallacy that takes the following form. If A, then C, C, hence A. The error it makes is in assuming that if the consequent is true, then the antecedent must also be true, which in reality need not be the case. For example, people who go to university are more successful in life. John is successful, hence he must have gone to university. Clearly, John's success could be a result of schooling, but it could also be a result of his upbringing, or perhaps his eagerness to overcome difficult circumstances. More generally, one cannot say that because schooling implies success, that if one is successful, then one must have received schooling. Halt! Stranger! Let me see your papers. Knights! Wear armour, stranger, and yet you are wearing armour and are not a knight. Well, guard, not everyone who wears armour has to be a knight. What do you mean? The Queen asked me to come and entertain the children at little Margaret's birthday party. She wanted me to show up in a knight's outfit and dance to the tune of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. The concept of the animated feature film was yet to be invented, stranger. Well, every story needs a plot hole. Appeal to Hypocrisy Also known by its Latin name, tu quoque, meaning you too. The fallacy involves countering a charge with a charge, rather than addressing the issue being raised with the intention of diverting attention away from the original argument. For example, John says, This man is wrong, because he has no integrity. Just ask him why he was fired from his last job, to which Jack replies, How about we talk about the fat bonus you took home last year, despite half your company being downsized? The appeal to hypocrisy may also be invoked when a person attacks another because what he or she is arguing for conflicts with his or her past actions.
On an episode of the topical British TV show Have I Got News For You, a panellist objected to a protest in London against corporate greed because of the protesters' apparent hypocrisy by pointing out that while they appear to be against capitalism, they continue to use smartphones and buy coffee. Here's another example from Jason Reitman's movie Thank You for Smoking, where a two-coque-laden exchange is ended by the smooth-talking tobacco lobbyist Nick Naylor. I'm just tickled by the idea of the gentleman from Vermont calling me a hypocrite when this same man in one day held a press conference where he called for the American tobacco fields to be slashed and burned. Then he jumped on a private jet and flew down to Farm Aid, where he rode a tractor on stage as he bemoaned the downfall of the American farmer. Why do you keep eating my porridge? I suspect it is because you are too lazy to make your own, and therefore find it easier to eat mine. How about I start listing all of your bad habits? How is that possibly a pertinent response to my accusation? Slippery Slope A slippery slope attempts to discredit a proposition by arguing that its acceptance will undoubtedly lead to a sequence of events one or more of which are undesirable. Though it may be the case that the sequence of events may happen, each transition occurring with some probability, this type of argument assumes that all transitions are inevitable, all the while providing no evidence in support of that. The fallacy plays on the fears of an audience and is related to a number of other fallacies, such as the appeal to fear the false dilemma, and the argument from consequences. For example, we shouldn't allow people uncontrolled access to the Internet. The next thing you know, they'll be frequenting pornographic websites, and soon enough our entire moral fabric will disintegrate and we will be reduced to animals. As is glaringly clear, no evidence is given other than the unfounded conjecture that Internet access implies the disintegration of a society's moral fabric, while also presupposing certain things about the conduct. Listen carefully, son. If you let a bully come in your front yard, he will be on your porch the next day, and the day after that he will eat your babies. Ah! Or that escalated quickly. Appeal to the bandwagon. Also known as the appeal to the people, such an argument uses the fact that a sizable number of people, or perhaps even a majority, believe in something, as evidence that it must therefore be true. Some of the arguments that have impeded the widespread acceptance of pioneering ideas are of this type. Galileo, for example, faced ridicule from his contemporaries for his support of the Copernican model. More recently, Barry Marshall had to take the extreme measure of dosing himself in order to convince the scientific community that peptic ulcers may be caused by the bacterium Helicobacter pylori.
a theory that was initially widely dismissed. Luring people into accepting that which is popular is a method frequently used in advertising and politics. For example, all the cool kids use this hair gel. Be one of them. Although becoming a cool kid is an enticing offer, it does nothing to support the imperative that one should buy the advertised product. Politicians frequently use similar rhetoric to add momentum to their campaigns and influence voters. Come on! It's a joyous occasion! It's a party! Everyone is celebrating! Just wear this party hat! But why? Well, because everyone else is wearing one, that's why! Well, that is certainly a compelling line of reasoning, Father. I suspect that that will come in very handy. Ad hominem. An ad hominem argument is one that attacks a person's character, rather than what he or she is saying, with the intention of diverting the discussion and discrediting the person's argument. For example, you're not a historian, why don't you stick to your own field? Here, whether or not the person is a historian has no impact on the merit of their argument and does nothing to strengthen the attacker's position. This type of personal attack is referred to as abusive ad hominem. A second type, known as circumstantial ad hominem, is any argument that attacks a person for cynical reasons by making a judgment about their intentions. For example, you don't really care about lowering crime in the city, you just want people to vote for you. There are situations where one may legitimately bring into question a person's character and integrity, such as during a testimony. Your ad hominem attacks are evidence that your arguments are baseless wrote user 226 following a heated discussion in an online chat room. Rodney began typing his reply. You appear to be too stupid to understand the difference between an insult and an ad hominem attack. Circular Reasoning Circular reasoning is one of four types of arguments known as begging the question where one implicitly or explicitly assumes the conclusion in one or more of the premises. In circular reasoning, a conclusion is either blatantly used as a premise, or more often it's reworded to appear as though it's a different proposition, when in fact it's not. For example, You're utterly wrong, because you're not making any sense. Here, the two propositions are one and the same since being wrong and not making any sense in this context mean the same thing. The argument is simply stating, because of X, therefore X, which is meaningless. A circular argument may at times rely on unstated premises, which can make it more difficult to detect. Here is an example from the Australian television series Please Like Me, where one of the characters condemns the other, a non-believer, to hell. To which she responds, That doesn't make any sense. It's like a hippie threatening to punch you in your aura. 
In this example, the unstated premise is that there exists a God who sends a subset of people to hell. Hence, the premise, there exists a God who sends non-believers to hell, is used to support the conclusion, there exists a God who sends non-believers to hell. The young apprentice tied two wooden boards to his arms and took position. Though anxious, he was excited by Master Sea Lion's promise that he too could fly like the birds. Are you sure that I won't fall to the ground, Master? Yes, little one. Trust in the book. Need I remind you of chapter 1, verse 1 of the book according to Sea Lion? Sea Lion is always right. Composition and Division Composition is inferring that a whole must have a particular attribute because its parts happen to have that attribute. If every sheep in a flock has a mother, it does not then follow that the flock has a mother, to paraphrase Peter Milliken. Here is another example. Each module in this software system has been subjected to a set of unit tests and has passed them all. Therefore, when the modules are integrated, the software system will not violate any of the invariants verified by those unit tests. The reality is that the integration of individual parts introduces new complexities to a system due to dependencies that may, in turn, introduce additional avenues for potential failure. Division, conversely, is inferring that a part must have some attribute because the whole to which it belongs happens to have that attribute. For example, our team is unbeatable. Any of our players would be able to take on a player from any other team and outshine him. While it may be true that the team as a whole is unbeatable, one cannot use that as evidence to infer that each of its players is thus unbeatable. A team's success is clearly not always the sum of the individual skills of its players. Final Remarks Many years ago I heard a professor introduce deductive arguments using a wonderful metaphor, describing them as watertight pipes where truth goes in one end and truth comes out the other end. As it happens, that was the inspiration for this book's cover. Having reached the end of this book, I hope that you leave not only with a better appreciation of the benefits of watertight arguments in validating and expanding knowledge, but also of the complexities of inductive arguments where probabilities come into play. With such arguments in particular, critical thinking proves an indispensable tool. I hope that you also leave with a realization of the dangers of flimsy arguments and how commonplace they are in our everyday lives. Definitions Proposition A statement that is either true or false, but not both. For example, Boston is the largest city in Massachusetts. Premise A proposition that provides support to an argument's conclusion an argument may have one or more premises. Argument A set of propositions aimed at persuading 
through reasoning. In an argument, a subset of propositions called premises provide support for some other proposition, called the conclusion. Deductive arguments An argument in which, if the premises are true, then the conclusion must be true. The conclusion is said to follow with logical necessity from the premises. For example, All men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. A deductive argument is intended to be valid, but of course might not be. Inductive argument An argument in which if the premises are true, then it is probable that the conclusion will also be true. The conclusion, therefore, does not follow with logical necessity from the premises, but rather with probability. For example, every time we measure the speed of light in a vacuum, it is 3 times 10 to the power 8 meters per second. Therefore, the speed of light in a vacuum is a universal constant. Inductive arguments usually proceed from specific instances to the general. In science, one usually proceeds inductively from data to laws to theories. Hence, induction is the foundation of much of science. Induction is typically taken to mean testing a proposition on a sample, either because it would be impracticable or impossible to do otherwise. Logical fallacy An error in reasoning that results in an invalid argument. Errors are strictly to do with the reasoning used to transition from one proposition to the next, rather than with the facts. Put differently, an invalid argument for an issue does not necessarily mean that the issue is unreasonable. Logical fallacies are violations of one or more of the principles that makes a good argument, such as good structure, consistency, clarity, order, relevance, and completeness. Formal fallacy a logical fallacy whose form does not conform to the grammar and rules of inference of a logical calculus. The argument's validity can be determined just by analysing its abstract structure without needing to evaluate its contents. Informal fallacy A logical fallacy that is due to its content and context rather than its form. The error in reasoning ought to be a commonly invoked one for the argument to be considered an informal fallacy. Validity A deductive argument is valid if its conclusion logically follows from its premises. Otherwise, it's said to be invalid. The descriptors valid and invalid apply only to arguments and not to propositions. Soundness a deductive argument is sound if it is valid and its premises are true. If either of those conditions does not hold, then the argument is unsound. Truth is determined by looking at whether the argument's premises and conclusions are in accordance with facts in the real world. Strength An inductive argument is strong if in the case that its premises are true, then it is highly probable that its conclusion is also true. Otherwise, if it is improbable that its conclusion is true, then it's said to be weak. Inductive arguments are not truth-preserving. It's never the case that a true conclusion must follow from true premises. Cogency 
An inductive argument is cogent if it is strong and the premises are actually true, that is, in accordance with facts. Otherwise it is said to be uncogent. Falsifiability An attribute of a proposition or argument that allows it to be refuted or disproved through observation or experiment. For example, the proposition all leaves are green may be refuted by pointing to a leaf that is not green. Falsifiability is a sign of an argument's strength rather than of its weakness. This has been an illustrated book of bad arguments written by Ali Al-Mosawi and narrated by James Gillis. Copyright and production copyright have been asserted in 2013 by Ali Al-Mosawi. Production facilities for this audiobook were provided by Yard's Head Productions in the UK. This has been an illustrated book of bad arguments, written by Ali Al-Mosawi and narrated by James Gillis. Copyright and production copyright have been asserted in 2013 by Ali Al-Mosawi. Production facilities for this audiobook were provided by Yard's Head Productions in the UK. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.